Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast brought to you by Women in ETFs. This is Christine Delano, and I'm thrilled you've joined me. Twice a month, we'll meet an amazing executive who'll share a story about her career and give us some great insight into her success. So if you are pursuing excellence in your own career or intrigued by the hustle required for a career on Wall Street, this podcast is for you. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to subscribe. Survival is essential. Success is great. But what does it mean to thrive? We've compiled the most popular and compelling advice from our guests and created a Thrive Guide with a workbook on leadership skills such as clarifying your vision and growing your influence. You can grab it at christinedelano.com. To find out more about our show and our guests, I invite you to follow me on Instagram. All these links will be in the show notes. So put aside that massive to-do list and let's get inspired. In this episode, Andrea Murray is talking about attracting from the top. Andrea is head of business development at Blackwater Search and Advisory based in London. Andrea relocated to London from Washington, D.C. in 2019, where she was the senior relationship manager and ETF specialist covering leverage, inverse, and volatility-based ETFs at ProShares. Her 20-year finance career began at Brown Brothers Harriman, working as a relationship manager covering international markets in a variety of capacities. She recently served as co-head of the Women in ETFs London chapter. Andrea is married with 12 nieces and nephews. She grew up in Boston and is a dog lover, often assisting with rescue dogs. She loves cooking for friends and family and participates in various types of high-intensity interval training to offset all that yummy food. Well, I'm impressed. (laughs) Well, welcome, Andrea, to We Talk Careers podcast. Thank you, Christine. I'm really honored to be here, and I found your podcast to be incredibly insightful and helpful. So thank you again for having me a guest. I I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, I am excited to have you on on this topic, and specifically you, attracting from the top. I just think it is so important to have these conversations and not only kind of explore what that looks like, but also give practical advice. And and I tell you, I have a ton of passion around this topic. And I think many of us kind of have stories that we start in, in, in the beginning of our career that sort of sets a framework for how we see things. And I remember one of my first jobs was actually for a medical technology company. I thought I was going to med school, so I was putting everything I could into a bit of time between college and med school to really ripen up my um, resume. And I worked for this firm, and I had quickly advanced to being able to run one of their first large vendor industry meetings. And so I, you know, have the conference room set. I've got people that are helping me. It's great. Every all the invitations have been sent out. I'm at the door and men start arriving and they hand me their code and they ask for coffee and you know ask where the restroom might be and you know just giving me logistical pieces of information about what they are and and I'm trying to spin around and like put the you know their coats where they need to be and you know helping them with coffee that they couldn't pour themselves and all of these pieces. And 
And then as everyone gets settled, I go to the head of the table and I open up the presentation decks we have before us and I say, let's get started. And all of their faces kind of fall and they're like, oh, that's Christine. <laughs> well, you know, no one had introduced themselves. And um, right. so it was this moment for me where I knew I had a choice to make. You know, I, I could have sort of barged in and been like, do you know who I am? You know, I'm the one that you've been speaking to. And, you know, I'm the one that we've worked together to get this meeting together. But instead, I decided, you know what, want to put everyone at ease, want to make sure everyone will come to the table. And I'll let the work that I do sort of speak for itself. I don't know that I thought through all the ramifications of how I approached that situation. I think some of it was just being naive and not knowing how to speak up. But the other piece of it was that I always wanted who I was and what I could bring to the table to to come to the forefront and not sort of rely on my title or or anything else about me. But just the fact that you could so easily be looked over so quickly was so impactful to how I thought about my career going forward. And so this topic of sort of attracting this next generation by taking a look at how the top of our companies, the diversity of the top of our companies looks is so important. So tell me a little bit about your passion and and sort of why we share this passion for our industry. Yeah, you know, Christine, I, I appreciate that story because those stories are hard to tell. And I can imagine that, unfortunately, a lot of us have something similar to that. But just, you know, just to step back a bit before I started my career, you know, I grew up with three brothers. So I've spent my you know entire life being accustomed to being outnumbered as a female. And to be honest, I actually, I actually loved having three brothers. I never really missed a sister, probably because I didn't you know have one. And I also appreciated the uniqueness in my family of being the only girl. Sometimes you had some benefits for being the only girl in the family. But when I you know entered the workplace after college, you know, I, I really at that time, you know, this is over 20 years ago, I wasn't really phased about financial services being heavily weighted towards men. And because back then it just seemed in my mind, um, probably back to kind of what you were saying about naivete is that, you know, it was just kind of a fact of life. Certain industries attract certain genders, but what's happened over the course of my career and in particular the past, I'd say five or so years within the ETF industry specifically, is that what I've noticed is that the conversation around fixing this, you know, quote unquote, numbers problem, if you want to call it a problem, is almost 100% focused on recruiting at the university level. And I think that, you know, talking to university level students about the benefits of, you know, the ETF industry or financial services, particularly to women and to minorities, is incredibly important. And I actually think that it would be great to start it even earlier at the high school level. Oh, I agree with that. I, I absolutely. I mean, I think it's hard sometimes going into universities and seeing they already have a diversity problem because we're not attracting, you know, kids out of high schools that actually want those majors. So not to interrupt, yeah. but that's, you know, I, I think that's that's a huge piece of this downstream food chain that we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. But this, you know, this recruiting idea at the university level to kind of even out the numbers fixes the problem of being evening the numbers, but it's it's just a short term solution. And so 
In my mind, the bigger, longer-term issue that we really have within this industry that I think needs to be addressed immediately is, you know, this lack of diversity at the top. Because why is this important? And the importance to this is that basically, if you want to attract those new recruits at the university level, you know, they really need to see that senior management and bosses look like them and someone to aspire to. Because really, when you think about it, you know, if you don't see anyone that looks like you at the top, you don't have a clear path to, you know, where is your career going to progress? And no no one starts their, you know, career after college and say, I can't wait to get to middle management. You know, they want to have um, this idea that, yes, I can make it to the top. And I see that there is, it's not just heavily weighted towards men or white men or however you want to phrase it. So that's really what it comes down to for me. I think that's so important because, what you said in the beginning about it not phasing you because you already, you know, sort of grew up in a family where you were outnumbered, you know, you came into an industry, you know, you found people to connect with, you weren't maybe looking initially up, right? You were sort of looking around and maybe seeing the folks that you were coming in with and seeing some opportunity and again, not being phased. So if companies rely on the idea that they're going to put all of their efforts on recruiting into universities and trying to get a larger slate of applicants coming into the field, that might, like you said, for the short term, work for, you know, getting a more diverse entry level positions. But over time, you know, and in the beginning, you know, getting to know the job and all of that, but over time, people are going to start to look up. And if they don't see a path because they don't see someone who speaks like them, looks like them, sort of addresses things like them, they're going to think that their contribution is not as valuable as who they do see at the top, right? So I, I love I love how you aren't devaluing all of the great recruiting that's going on, you know, at that entry level. But just this idea that if there isn't a path, then it doesn't feel like opportunity, right? Right. And I think, you know, it's funny uh, when we talked about this topic for the podcast up, you know, I was, I was coming up with like, okay, what would I like to actually talk about and address? I started actually doubting myself. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Is it just me? Maybe there really isn't a problem in the industry because there certainly have been a lot of positive advancements, um, which, you know, we can talk about a little bit later on, but you know, one of the things that I did come across earlier this year, Deloitte and the 30% Club published their, they have an annual women in the boardroom study and they report, so it's a global study. And basically what they, the numbers that they came back with um, for financial services industry, women only held 21% of board seats, 19% of C-suite roles and 5% of CEO positions in 2021. And I'm not really surprised by these numbers being so low. I mean, we've had a lot of positive change in the industry, um, which again, we'll touch on later. But, you know, the sad truth is that companies are still lagging in this area of creating diversity at the top. And, and I really think that we need to make an impact in that area and, you know, have really essentially a two-pronged approach. So attracting talent from the university level but also making a concentrated effort of speeding up the process of creating more diversity at top with the numbers. And it's not going to happen overnight, but I definitely believe in this industry. And I think that we can do it. We just need to be paying 
in my mind, a little more attention to it because the numbers come up okay annually. And, you know, you see media reports here and there, but to be honest, I haven't, I personally have not come across a lot of, I I guess you could call it like nonprofit organizations or things happening within companies where they're really making a push. I think people talk about it, but the evidence is obviously in the numbers and and that I think is very important and we need to, we need to get those up. Yes. And so can we press on this for a moment? So how do you actually define attracting from the top? You know, it, it, it's pretty clear what greater diversity from the university level and all of that. And then, you know, you can follow food chains up and, you know, you can see how people do recruiting for their, you know, top level positions, but attracting from the top, what, what does that actually mean for our listeners? So I think this really means that, again, going back to, they have to be able to illustrate that there's diversity at the top level to bring, attract new talent into that organization. So, you know, some firms are already doing this, but for, you know, I have some suggestions for firms that are not doing this yet. And I'll just give an example for a personal example before I go into these suggestions. But, you know, one of my girlfriends, um, you know, a very good friend of mine that I used to work with at Brown Brothers Hairman's, we've been friends for 20 years. She's pretty advanced in her career. And she started looking at finding a, another role outside of, um, she's, in, she's still in financial industry. And she got down to the point where she was between two different firms. And basically the final question she asked them both to help her make that decision was, what are you doing at the top to show diversity? And is there a clear path for me to get to, you know, managing director? And one of the firms had really very few women and the other did, and they had a clear path, like, here's what we're going to do to get you to the top. And that's the firm that she chose. So I think that is really critical for firms to have diversity. So basically for firms that are not actively making a concentrated effort on this right now, and I think it probably actually applies to a lot of the smaller firms because certainly it's harder for them to have, you know, a team of people focusing on this, but I think that they still should. And you know what you can do, and some firms do this and some firms don't again, but you could, you know, essentially create like a task force within a company and and have them do three things. One, take an assessment of your employees and figure out, is there actually diversity, you know, across the board, but it's particularly at the top, you know, the firm that I worked at before that I mentioned where, you know, in our conversation before the podcast recording, it was all all men in the managing team members. And so there was no one that looked like me. Um, So I think it's important to take, you know, a pulse check of where do we currently stand? And then two, assess if there are women or minorities within your organization that are ready for that stage to fill those upper management roles and discuss with them a potential advancement path. And then the third thing is, you know, this isn't just about filling a quota because sometimes people will argue that, oh, you're just trying to fill a number. That's not what this is. So if you don't have people that are qualified and ready to fill those roles, create like a, ma- a, a management training program where you can train those individuals to get to the stages. Like here are the tools that you need to get to that management executive level. And I have an example of that. Brown Brothers Harriman, when I, you know, that was my first job out of college. And, you know, they're like one of the oldest, I think the oldest private bank in, in globally. I could be wrong on that, but they, you know, were founded in 1818. And at that time, they actually, across the board, partnership-wise, had only one female partner. But I will tell you what they did have. They had an internal management training program. And when I was there, they would pick six people that they wanted to groom to become managing directors or partners. 
And it was diverse. And that was over 20 years ago. And one of my girlfriends was part of that. And there were two other women and then three white men, but they split it evenly. And I thought that that, that actually, I hadn't thought about that for a while, but based on this conversation that kind of popped up in my mind. That's so good to, you know, sort of keep in mind if our listeners are out there that actually have the opportunity to create change. I just kind of want to pause on those three steps that you went through. The first one was some assessment of where they're at. And I think quite a few firms from what I'm hearing are sort of doing that assessment and then finding themselves in probably not the space that they want to be from a number of aspects of diversity. Because with thought leadership, it's so important to have diverse views. And, you know, that can be gender and it can be race and it can be, you know, a lot of different backgrounds, you know, even the types of sort of majors that are flowing into this industry, you know, some non-traditional paths as well. I, I think that idea of really looking at the diversity at the top of firms is so important. So that assessment. And then you said, do you have people in the firm that are ready to take the next step for some of these positions? And what are those positions that we can move people into? And then if they're not, I love the idea of not just basically saying, okay, well, now we need to recruit outside. Now we need to go and (laughs) we need to look, you know, at who does have candidates, you know, create the candidates from within. So these management training programs, I really just wanted to pause on those because those were so powerful for companies looking to enact change at their own tops. So, so thank you for that. So let, let me drill in a little bit farther. So We've got folks as listeners on this podcast who are in position to make change within their company. They can do this. And I know because I hear from them. But we have a lot of listeners that aren't in a position to be able to go and say, you know what, I'm going to create a management training program within my firm because they aren't, you know, they don't have those kind of positions to allow them to do that. So do you have advice for our listeners that are observing this? want to stay where they're at, want to see this kind of change happen, what what kind of advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think really there's a there's a couple of things. And one is you really need to find out internally within your company, because I think a lot of people are in that position of not having the power to make change. So you need to really identify, okay, this is the thing that I want to fix here. And then you need to determine who are the decision makers the people empowered to make changes within the firm and also key influencers. So, and the reason I mentioned key influencers is because they have the ear typically of those decision makers. So whether that's the CEO or managing directors. So I'll give an example. Um, You know, the firm that I worked at back in the States before moving to London, the CEO was ultimately the decision maker. I mean, people kind of lightly said, oh, he does everything like down to ordering the pens of the company and approving the pen, you know, new change in the color of a pen. Um, not that people really use pens anymore, but but then right below him were managing directors. And so the, I would consider those people to be the key influencers. So you would identify them and then you would say within there, okay, which of these people is going to probably be the best advocate for this change and kind of get their ear and discuss with them what you're looking to do. And you really have to go in there armed with facts and figures. And I know in a past podcast, you were talking to Rebecca Sin from um, Bloomberg Intel, and she had mentioned about, you know, hard conversations. You really need to go in with quantitative information in addition to the qualitative. You can't just go in and say, hey, there's a real problem here with 
diversity at the top, we need to fix it. You really need to go in armed with as much information as you can have. Like, so for example, going back to that Deloitte survey, having those numbers, looking at what competitors are doing, because a lot of times decision makers are actually very, very motivated by what their competition is doing. And so if they see, oh, you know, such and such firm is doing it and they're our closest competition, we better get on board because we don't want to lose our employees to them. So there's a, there's a number of things you can do, and I, it really does take time, unfortunately. But I think if it's something you're passionate about, it's completely worth it. So it's really d- identifying who are the decision makers, who's empowered to make changes, finding out who key influencers are as well, so you can have conversations with them to kind of boost up your case. And then going kind of also finding an advocate within that group who's going to kind of say, you know what, I really agree with what you're thinking and I'll be the person that's the speaker for you because maybe you're entry level or mid-level and you don't really have that opportunity to use your voice. So if you're specific about what it is that you're going after, and this could be applied to a lot <laughs> a lot of different sort of initiatives and maybe challenges at firms, but specifically when we're talking about adding diversity within organizations, both so be specific about it, understanding your key influencers and decision makers, arming yourself with research. And then it seems like maybe there needs to be some translation of the research into how is it applicable to the folks in the firm, right? So like all the research can tell us certain things, but like how is it that it could actually impact really positively to see that kind of diversity come into the firm? So do you see that translation being an important sort of fourth step here? Definitely. And it, it, thank you for reminding me of that because it, it's it's the what's in it for them. And it kind of goes to, you know, my background has always been in like sales or relationship management. And, you know, you don't ever just approach someone and say, hey, we've got this great product. You have to think like, okay, what are their needs and what is their position and how can I help them and kind of how is this going to benefit them? Because at the end of the day, that's when people's ears perk up. So I think that that's absolutely something else that you need to consider, whether it's this change that I'm talking about about diversity at the top on the executive level, or whether there's some other change that you're looking to make for improvement within your organization, you have to kind of look at all those different angles. So I think that is absolutely a key aspect of getting something to the final, like passing that final line for sure. Right. Yeah. When we, when we started women in ETFs, you know, there's just a few founders and then a number of us joined ranks with them to fulfill an organization with leadership positions there wasn't a lot of, you know, sort of diversity groups within some of the large firms. And we've seen them really come to fruition over the last few years and partner with women in ETFs, which is fantastic because it can drive change. But if they don't have a actual goal of promoting diversity, if they're really more about, okay, well, what speakers would be of interest to women or, you know, what are some of the topics that we should be addressing, but actually don't help formulate the paths that allow for opportunity within the firms, then they can be somewhat ineffective in actually changing the diversity landscape of a firm. So I I love the idea of these step-by-step advice that you have here for listeners that maybe aren't in a place that they can actually drive it but maybe they can partner with some of the key influencers. And sometimes it is going to be an organization that's already in their firm, right? Maybe coming in with research that those organizations don't already have, and then really helping to spell out what's in it for them, which I love. 
And then also, you know, with some really practical advice of like, how can we get some of these women into positions that firms have a need for? So sometimes it's not about reinventing the wheel, but finding out how you can sort of partner with wheels that are already sort of turning in organizations. Yeah. And and I'm really happy that you mentioned the women ETFs too, because I saw there was a press release that they had just crossed over 8,000 people globally, which is really impressive. And there's a lot of resources in there. So if you, if, if you're someone who is, you know, newer in the industry and you're like, I'm, I'm a little nervous about, you know, it takes a lot of courage to speak up and share your ideas sometimes, especially if it's something that's a little uncomfortable like this, but you absolutely have people within that group, you know, within your chapter, or maybe look at another chapter and you can reach out. And I've had people reach out to me and ask questions like, Hey, I've got this kind of interesting topic. I'm a little, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. What do you think? Does women in ETFs have any data on that, that I can use as part of my research? And so I think absolutely tapping into women in ETFs as kind of a, a backup plan, if you want to start there to see what else has been done in the industry, I think is a, is, is a good idea as well. Absolutely. I mean, the whole reason why I started this podcast was because I was mentoring a number of women on different places in their career and, you know, some really challenging things that they were going through. And I kept thinking, oh, there's a woman I know that you should talk to, or there's a firm that does that really well, or there's a piece of research. And I thought, wow, you know, there's a lot of benefit to sort of creating you know, a network and being able to communicate outside of the people that you're seeing all the time. And I think women in ETFs has done a really, really great job of forming that kind of community. So thank you for mentioning that. So in the beginning of this podcast, we talked a little bit about both you and I kind of coming into this industry with a bit of bit of a naive nature, you know, which I think is just expected as we sort of learn the rules of the road for for doing well in it. I have all sisters, you have all brothers, so we probably had different expectations into how all of this would work in terms of diversity. But as you think back on your younger self who, you know, kind of came in and, as you said, sort of created, um, you know, relationships with your peers and things like that, do you have specific advice for her that you would have wished that you could have shared with her um, after all these years that, that you've put in? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I, have, I, I have so much that I probably it would take up an entire podcast, but obviously we do not have time for that. Um, and I, I love this question. And I, I just think it's it's great for anyone because it's like, it's it's fun to kind of look back and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was, I was, I was, I was very naive when I entered the industry. But so, you know, what I would tell myself back then is that, you know, a couple of things, just prepare yourself for the fact there's going to be, there's going to be some great highs, there's going to be some lows those bumps that you learn along the way ultimately will teach you some valuable lessons. But as it relates to this particular topic and needing to have that, you know, um, being able to talk to key influencers and identifying those people within your firm, it really, that really ties into networking, which I know has been, you know, a popular topic that's come up with a lot of your podcast guests. And I think it's incredibly important and actually very much under value. Uh, It's valued, but I think people kind of don't appreciate it, the power of it as much as they should. So when I say that is that you really need to early on identify those key stakeholders, who they are, and have a disciplined plan around networking and establishing visibility with those people. So in my mind, the key stakeholders are people that actually can make decisions within an organization. And that that doesn't mean that you can't obviously network with your peers, 
Um, but what I'm saying, the mistake that, you know, I probably made, you know, at least the first year in my um, career was I just really was focusing on, you know, people my age, um, people that looked like me. And I was like, okay, we're going to really from a social aspect, but you can do that. But in tandem, you also need to figure out, okay, who are the people that I really need to be speaking with so that I can help advance my career and, um, you know, talk about potentially ideas that I might have for change, like the change that we're talking about now on this topic. And so one of the things that I actually, in terms of networking, like some of the changes I made once I kind of got out of that, okay, I'm having some fun in my 20s and I need to start thinking seriously about my career and advancing it is uh, my first job in ETFs. I basically made the first month I said, okay, I'm going to go around to each department and I'm going to introduce myself to each of the department heads and I'm going to ask them for to meet for a coffee. And then I'm also going to ask to meet for a coffee first with someone that reports to that person, just to kind of get an idea of like, what are they talking about? Um, what can I learn from them? And also how can I help them? Because as we know, networking is a two-way street. Mm. It's not just what you can get from them. So that's the biggest thing. I think the networking is just such a powerful, powerful tool that I think people tend to really not focus on as much as they should until maybe like midway through their career or maybe. Right. And you really need to start from the beginning and keep in touch with those people. I mean, I will say that I have a lot of people that I kept in touch with from my early days in my career, but there's definitely people that I'm like, you know what? I, sh I wish I kept in touch with them because you can't, you really can't just reach out, you know, 15 years later and be like, Hey, so I see here if I got an open position at your firm and I'd love to apply it. It doesn't work that way. So. Although a lot of people try that. You wouldn't yes, believe, I'm, I'm sure you do too, right? I'm you know, all that. these like LinkedIn, you know, notes where I'm like, wow, I haven't spoken to them in 20 years and yet <laughs> right. somehow they need something right now. Yes. Um, yes. And, which is fine. I mean, I, I you know, I, yeah, I understand it and, you know, time moves on, but it's certainly a lot more powerful if it's someone that I've kept up with, you know, over time. So I certainly encourage those kind of connections. And, you know, and I hope more and more people as they hear your voice and others on this podcast have an opportunity to reach out to people. So I have one more question for you on this topic before you before we get to, to the last question I always ask. And that is, is there someone in this industry that you want to give a shout out to um, that's maybe done a good job of thinking about diversity within firms? Uh, yeah, definitely. And he has no idea who I am, but um, it, this person is, I feel like everyone in the industry might know him at this point, but um, Chandran Thomas, who was previously the chief executive at Northern Trust Asset Management for their um, global asset management business. And I don't know if you remember, but in, back in 2020, which seems like eons ago, um, mm -hmm. he wrote an open letter on LinkedIn about racial injustice. It was widely read eventually turned, you know, was picked up by the Financial Times, all sorts of media outlets. And that open letter turned into many interviews where he eventually directed that conversation to the lack of diversity within financial services. And he was the first person in my entire career who was in an executive role that I ever heard say, diversity has to start at the top. And when I first heard, when I heard him say that, and I actually saw it in print because it's included in the Financial Times article, um, because I rechecked that, I had that aha moment, as Oprah says, and where I thought, finally, like someone at the top has taken the bold and courageous step to be vocal about their responsibility to make change. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. I mean, you think about when you so-called make it to the top, you make it to the, the, the level that you aspire to. There's a lot of 
effort that goes into that. And there's a lot of hours and just, you know, grind and, and you don't, I mean, I can say this personally, I've, I've had this feeling as well. You don't want to shake, you don't want to rock the boat and you don't want to risk that position. And you almost like keep yourself in a protective bubble. Like, okay, let, let's, let's have someone else fix that issue. But he actually took the step to put himself out there very, very publicly and to stand up for diversity at the executive level. I really appreciated that. And I just thought that was such a powerful thing. And that, that is the thing that sticks out in my mind most when I think about this subject. Right. It made me think of, there's a line in, I think the movie is American president, but he says something like, I was too busy keeping my job. I forgot to do my job. And, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, yes. and, and I feel like that's really what it comes down to. Um, and I, I really love that you mentioned him and this open letter and everything that the really positive fallout from it. And also Mm. a lot of the critical nature of, you know, folks looking at that and, and, you know, trying to, you know, understand the mirrors that, that were put up. So thank you for that. And and we'll put a link to that financial times article as, as well as some other things that he spawned from, from that open letter. I, I love what we've been able to talk about today. And I hope it just sort of encourages folks to say that they're not alone if they're in firms that lack the diversity that I think is going to be so important as we uh, mature in this ETF community, as well as, you know, many other industries that are going to need to really evolve and um, to succeed in in this next uh, millennium. So thank you for your comments today. So our last question, which, you know, I always love and would love to get your thoughts on, but what is a book that you would like to recommend to our listeners? So I'm currently reading Atomic Habits by James Clare, and I know it's a global mm. hit, so I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of it. But, you know, like a lot of other people, I developed um, some new hobbies in during the pandemic because, you know, I had a, some extra time on my hands, was at home every day, and also wanted to kind of distract myself from the craziness that was going on in the world. So I, you know, picked up like Spanish every day and baking and, you know, all sorts of positive new habits. But then as soon as things started opening up and things started getting busy again, I dropped all those good habits. And I have like a laundry list of like, okay, these are the things I want to really implement. And I, I realized I'm like, you know what, something is holding me back here. And I came across this book. I'm like, that's it. I'm buying it. Like, I just need that push. And I'll, I'll t- give you two tips from the book that I think have been, for me, very helpful. Um, one is, is to anchor a positive new habit to something that you already have. So for example, brushing, or everyone brushes their teeth, you know, morning, night, maybe more than that. And so let's say you want to say, okay, I want to really start my day in a positive note. While you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you could say three things you're grateful for, for example. And then the other is, which I find really fascinating is, you know, just the fact that our brains are wired to, um, we're very much motivated by reward and in particular, the anticipation of reward. So, so one of the, um, bad habits that I used to have, which I think a lot of people have is that the first thing I would do in the morning when I would wake up is check my phone and eventually got to like checking Instagram and you just get into a rabbit hole. And so I realized I need to drop this habit. And so one of the suggestions is basically say, okay, I'm going to implement a new good habit and then I'm going to reward myself at the end of that habit. And that's how you establish it. So my new process, and I've really just started this in the last couple of weeks, is creating three things that may be productive right when I wake up, 
going for a run, checking work email or something like that and making a healthy breakfast. And then I will reward myself with checking my phone and the Instagram. And so far it's worked and I actually kind of like it. So those are the two, you know, he has a number of tips in the book, um, but those are the two that really so far have resonated with me and have worked for me. So I, I think this is definitely it. a book I should be reading. And <laughs> I know I've had a number of friends that have <laughs> that have recommended it and I'm such not a routine person. So like the idea of atomic habits and I start to like, you know, get a little itchy. Um, but I do know that, you know, everyone has habits and everybody, you know, has routines, whether they want to admit to it or not, as in my case. Um, and I think there, there's a lot of power in being intentional about the things that you do and, and how you yourself are rewarded. So I don't know if my kids are listening. Sure. It's on my (laughs) Christmas list now. (laughs) I'll read it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Andrea. This has been a, just a, such a good conversation. So many great pithy things to take away from this. And I really hope it inspires our listeners. So thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again, Christine. I really appreciate it and for giving me a voice. And thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope this is not just information, but you let it be transformational in how you think about your career. I'm rooting for you. To find out more about diversity, opportunity, and events in the exchange-traded fund industry, please visit womeninetfs.com. And while it lasts, be sure to grab your Thrive Guide on becoming the leader you want to be. You can download it at, with a K, christinedelano.com. If you haven't subscribed to We Talk Careers podcast, please make sure you do so. And if there's a topic you'd like us to tackle, let us know. All links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening.